please join me in reading the words for lighting the chalice printed in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. I am Susan Thompson, your lay leader today. We are an intentionally inclusive congregation, and we welcome persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We extend a special welcome to our guests this morning. We're glad you're here. Please join with me in affirming our mission statement, printed in our order of service and on our wall. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes if you wish and get very still and quiet and feel the love inside you. This love is like a light. Feel this love and this light inside you. And now imagine in the darkness with your eyes closed, imagine the darkness turning into sunshine. And know that you can bring sunshine to people who are sad or lonely or afraid. You can bring them sunshine by sharing your love with them. And as you open your eyes, think about someone you can share your love with today. Years ago, I met a woman in my, in my Unitarian Universalist church in Manchester, New Hampshire, named Charlene. And she was a motivational speaker and a great advocate for positive thinking. Charlene was a tall drink of water, beautiful, intelligent, always had perfect hair, and a wonderful smile three gorgeous children, and a very handsome husband. I wanted to be Charlene, but I'm too short. I could never quite embrace all that positive attitude stuff, though. After all, I was in my 20s, full of angst, a divorced single mother whose ex-husband had deserted my daughter and his child, never to contact her again until very briefly when she was 15 years old, and never again after that. Years later, Charlene shared with me that her life was not as perfect as it had appeared, and there were many heartbreaks and illnesses and money issues that they had suffered through, but they survived by loving each other and helping others and sharing positive energy to all those around them. She gave me a gift by telling me that it was my own sense of joy and wonder and love about life and people that helped me make me a survivor and also helped those around me feel better. 
Charlene was showing up, choosing her attitude, making someone's day, and playing long before it was a part of the success story of the world-famous Pike Place Fish Market. And I bet if I were to call her today, she'd tell me that she'd incorporated the philosophy in all of her speeches. Music has always been very important to me. Perhaps one could say it's been the core of my existence. I was a child of the 60s, so of course there were the Beatles, but mostly I adored my folk singers, Judy Collins, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, and I was going to be all of them when I grew up. That's going to be a lot of people. When I met Meg, I was going to be her, too. That's not going to Music was always there for me in times of silliness, joy, hope, tragedy, sorrows, elation, passion, pain, and the mundane. Music has provided, provided my first connection to Unitarian Universalism. When I was 18 years old, attending Columbia College, a Methodist woman's college in, Manchester, in Columbia, South Carolina, I became part of a folk singing group called the Ladybugs. My beloved ladybugs and I were asked to sing at a service at the Columbia UU Fellowship. They met at that time in a big green house, and I, would, and I noticed a small group of children went to one part of the house for classes after a story while the adults listened to a speaker and then discussed the topic. And I remember we sang, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? and all, and all kinds of other um, anti-war songs. It was the first time as a singer that I really experienced speaking my values through music. I was exhilarated and wanted more of this UU thing. A few years later, my now ex-husband and I were living in Manchester, New Hampshire. We were house parents for three adults with cognitive disabilities and our year-old baby in tow. We went. We were both raised Episcopalian. As my mother would want you to know, I was raised high Episcopalian. <laughs> we went to the Episcopal church in town, and that morning the priest spoke about loving each other, reaching out to strangers. But when we walked out of the church, he rebuffed this strange little family of mine in a way that devastated me. Wasn't the church a place where we could bring our joys and pains and be hugged and loved? Later, as we mulled over our experience, I asked, being very new to New England, do you suppose there are any UUs around here? <laughs> well, hallelujah, there were. So we next attended the Manchester UU Church and walked in the door, and our minister, Eliam Galt, greeted us with the biggest smile and the heartiest handshake I've ever known. We were home. The church continued from that first day forward to nurture us and care for us. They were my daughter Dana's and my extended family for over 20 years. They saw me with a guitar in hand and asked me to be a youth advisor. This is true. And seeing its services as well. Over the years, the church held fundraisers to purchase two different guitars for me. They held Dana and me even closer as we went through divorce, poverty, and perils of life. They nurtured me by helping me discover that I had gifts 
that I didn't even know I had. I really discovered my singing voice here. I found out I loved working with children. I further developed the comedian that I can sometimes be, the organizer, the advocate, the storyteller, and on and on. And they hired me to be their DRE for a couple of years. And they sent me to religious, the Religious Education Week at Star Island, which is a UU conference center off the coast of New Hampshire. For the, and I went there for the first time in 1985. This is since and forever will be my spirit's home. And any of you that have attended UU conference or summer experiences know from whence I speak. These are life-changing moments. The love is so intensely felt. I was always I was singing and performing and playing the guitar during the years I raised my child. My daughter would never really sing with me. I didn't discover until she was older how intense, though, her own need and love of music that she had and continues to be in her life. I didn't even know she cared for or knew anything that I used to sing until I discovered she was one of those Gen Xers that knew all the folk songs and even liked to mimic me doing some of my silliest ditties. I've discovered for both of us that music actually gave us a voice in our worlds, but it also comforts us in times of great need. It has not been an easy life for either one of us. We've each made some really bad decisions and have had quite messy lapses in wisdom. But we have always found great love and hope that all, great hope that always surrounds us. We are both survivors of varying degrees. But through it all, we pull out our songs and we remember the strength within us that gives us freedom to continually soar and soar again. Music has helped us choose better attitudes, make someone's day, and certainly has helped us play. But there have been times when I felt as though the music died for me. Times when it gave me no joy, no comfort, no solace, no laughter, no hope. I would hide from it because it might open my heart. In my life, when I wouldn't allow the music to help, I'd find solace in the next place, which for me was food. <laughs> I've been overweight most of my life, there, and I've had varying degrees of the weight that I've carried. I've seen old pictures of me that I didn't recognize because I was so thin. And that was only five years after the picture had been taken, not because I was old now and young then. But no matter the weight, I performed in front of people, usually confident at work, played with my child, fell in love, volunteered for places like the Women's Crisis Service, and taught our religious ed classes, and so much more. As I grew older, despite my weight, I developed self-confidence, sense of purpose, recognition of gifts I had, understanding of the world around me, and the impact that I could have on someone's life. I actually start to, started to like myself, maybe around age 39, but it, I got there. And I understood that what was in my heart was so much more important than how good I looked. But I think I forgot that being healthy 
was actually more important than how I looked as well. After my daughter was grown and left home, I decided to go to college again, and this time to get certified in elementary ed, K through eighth grade. So I went to home, I went to live with my mother in Fountain in South Carolina. I went to Clemson and then joined the Greenville Unitarian Universalist Fellowship there. And yes, that is when I first heard about our own Meg Barnhouse. I was home in a way, even though as a child my family never lived in one place more than five years. Ergo, why I'm a traveling soul that I am. It was home because my mom was there. It was a good thing. And we both got to know each other more as the incredible women that we are, as opposed to mother-daughter. My first teaching job was one that I should never have been placed in. I was the wrong person for the children I taught. I was teaching at an alternative school for junior high students that were placed there as their last resort. They had a myriad of emotional and behavioral and criminal issues and hard family lives. And I looked like the lady that just only experienced popping bonbons all day. And how the hell did I know what they were going through? I wasn't good at the job. I was an out-and-out failure. I came home every night in deep despair, frightened and worried, and I ate and I ate, and my blood pressure skyrocketed, and I was on the verge of a heart attack. My doctor advised that I quit, so I quit, and I had failed. And it was then that I went into a self-imposed depression that included no music, no joy, no hope. I went into a cocoon of safety. I never wanted to come out. And that's when I felt the music had died Fortunately, after this failure, I needed a way to fly again. So I returned to a part of the country that for some reason feeds my soul. I returned to New England, and this time settling in on the coast of New Hampshire, right on Route 1A, where I could look out at the ocean when I woke in the morning and also see my beloved Star Island. I needed to be back where my spirit would find a new path, a new journey, a new source of freedom, where my music might live again. I think I returned to New England because it was part of the world that had really given me my UU community. I knew people all over the area. They knew me. They knew the gifts I had. They knew and understood my idiosyncrasies. They understood I had flaws, but they loved me and embraced me because they knew and believed I had great potential to continue to find my soaring ways again. So I survived my teaching disaster, and with the help of love from a lot of friends, I found grace. Now, I've been in and out of these cocoons of safety, I like to call them. Many times, and each time, I emerged from that cocoon stronger than ever. Over the last ten years, I've had some great successes, both personally and professionally. But at the same time, I subconsciously was sinking into a new low, and I began an assault on my body again. 
I got to a point that I could no longer deal with it alone. I gained more and more weight. No matter what I do, I couldn't lose it. I felt miserable. I was broken. I tried Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, Weight Watchers, hypnosis, everything. And I'd last for a week. I'd say, well, I've done that. What's next? And I, I, had, a, I had to use a cane. I couldn't breathe very well. And I won't bother to list all the other medical issues that accompanied the amount of weight that I had gained. I was physically burdened, again, finding no joy in life and no energy for work or play. Being so overweight saps all the energy from you, even the energy to love yourself and others around you. I was giving up. I wasn't showing up for me. I was no good for anyone. But I continued, you know, that that persona we put on out in public. Somehow did it. When I arrived at Emerson Unitarian Universalist in Houston in 2009 as their interim director of religious education, I was at my heaviest of 280 pounds. I eventually had four doctors caring for me and all my health issues, and they would all say, of course, the same thing. You must lose weight. My hematologist finally lovingly said to me, your primary doctor and I have been talking about you. Have you ever considered gastric bypass? And I said, yes, but I'm afraid. So he directed me to a clinic where I finally had the surgery last November. To say that I've changed is an understatement. I've lost over 110 pounds. I still need to lose a good bit more to reach my goal. But I've thrown out the cane. I did that by December. I climb the stairs. I walk. I exercise. I eat properly. Most of the time. I breathe. I breathe. I'm singing again. I found joy and I've chosen a positive attitude most of the time. And the days that I make someone else smile are my happiest. In the book Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, by Chip and Dan Heath, they write, The conventional wisdom in psychology is that the brain has two independent systems, and they're at work at all times. First, there's what we call the emotional side. It's the part of you that is instinctive, that feels pain and pleasure. And second, there's that rational side, also known as the reflective or conscious system. And it's the part of you that deliberates and analyzes and looks into the future. The authors feel the tension between the two brain systems is captured best by an analogy used by University of Virginia psychologist Jonathan Haidt, H-I-D-T-D-T, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And in that book, Haidt says that our emotional side is an elephant, and our rational side is its rider. Perched atop the elephant, the rider holds the reins and seems to be the leader. But the rider's control is precarious because the rider is so small relative to the elephant. Anytime that six-ton elephant and the rider disagree about which direction to go, well, guess who wins? The 
The writer is completely overmatched. The, the authors continue to state that most of us are all too familiar with situations in which our elephant overpowers our rider. You've experienced it if you've ever slept in, overeaten, dialed up your ex at midnight, <laughs> procrastinated, tried to quit smoking and failed, skipped the gym, gotten angry and said something you regretted. No. Abandoned your Spanish or piano lessons, refused to speak up in a meeting because you were scared, and so on and so on. They explain the weakness of the elephant, our emotional and instinctive side is clear. It's lazy and skittish, often looking for the quick payoff. Ergo, the ice cream cone as opposed to the long-term payoff of being thin. When change efforts fail, it's usually the elephant's fault since the kinds of change we want typically involve short-term sacrifices for long-term payoffs. Changes often fail because the rider simply can't keep the elephant on the road long enough to reach that destination. Elephants' hunger is... And for, and for hunger for instant gratification is the opposite of the writer's strength, which is the ability to think long-term, to think beyond the moment. All those things that your pet can't do. Just envisioning little dogs. They don't have a writer, I don't think. But the elephant also has enormous strengths and that the writer has crippling weaknesses. The elephant isn't always the bad guy. Emotion is the elephant's turf. Love and compassion and sympathy and loyalty, that fierce instinct to protect your child from harm, that's the elephant. That spine-stiffening you feel when you need to stand up for yourself, that's the elephant. And even more important, if you're contemplating a change, the elephant is the one who gets things done to make progress toward a goal, whether it's noble or crass, requires the energy and drive of that elephant. And this strength is the mirror image of the rider's great weakness. Spinning his wheels, overanalyzing, overthinking. If you want to change things, you've got to appeal to both. The rider provides the planning and the direction. And the elephant provides the energy. So if you reach the riders of a team, but not the elephants, team members will have understanding without motivation. And if you reach the elephants but not their riders, they'll have passion without direction. In both cases, the flaws can be paralyzing. A reluctant elephant and a wheel-spinning rider can both ensure that nothing changes. But when elephants and riders move together, change can come easily. I think this perhaps is why I found a love for interim work. I get to use both my rider and elephant while helping beloved communities such as First UU Austin find a balance. I feel a wee bit more competent and confident in, in my own ability to do this with each new interim, and I learn more about how churches function and how I function as a leader. It's an exhilarating place to be. In my personal life, I'd say the elephant is still there 90% of the time. Fortunately, in mine and for most of us, I suspect, 
the elephant does get a little tired and wants a little help. That's the time when we perhaps we stop and say, I need to listen to the rational side of me. I need to rest and analyze why I do what I do, where I'm going, what I want. I'm too tired to feel the passion for the things I love. I need to stop. That's why I was able to make a decision that I couldn't lose weight on my own. I needed outside help to help me find success and to relearn what it is and who it is that exists in this body. As I've begun this personal and physical transformation, I know that I have more weight to lose, that I still and always will need to exercise and eat healthy and healthy and care for myself in ways that I let fall by the wayside in the past. I've had to rediscover all the things I love and love to do and that I love people. I was getting to a point where I couldn't bear to be with people because I couldn't bear to be with myself. It's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and I wasn't being very nice to me. How can I find energy to be nice to others? When I'm in right relationship with myself, in the words of Iris DeMent in her song, My Life, I can give joy to my mother, I can make my lover smile, and I can give comfort to my friends when they're hurting, and I can make it feel better for a while. Does this mean that all my trials are over? Of course not. Many worries and people to take care of and love and aches and pains and bad hair days ahead. But now, the excitement that wells up inside me, that joy that I'm feeling right now with all the activity around the Connections Fair, and the excitement of moving into my new apartment on October 13th is delightful. The happiness of seeing my 91-year-old mother this summer twice and being able to take her 10- and 12-year-old grandsons to great-grandsons to see her for the first time in about eight years was exhilarating. And it was exhilarating to be able to literally run after those boys. I'm still mostly that elephant, but my rider is really firmly attached and helping me push on the walls of my cocoons and guiding me as I fly through this wonderful thing called life. Now, I fortunately have many friends that are not UU, believe it or not, but I am so blessed to have found so many loving UU communities that over and over again hold me, call me to look beyond myself, but also call on me to love myself. Communities that support and restore my soul. That love is miraculous. You have it here for each of you. And I say to you, remember Pike Place fishmongers. Start throwing some fish around. Show up, choose your attitude, make someone's day and play. And fly with the freedom to explore. Fly with freedom to fill your soul with all that you are. Fly with the joy of giving and receiving. 
fly with the wonder of discovery of who you are and the gifts that you have. Each day is a blessing when the spirit of beloved community is there to embrace you and when you need to rest or seek comfort or find peace of mind, know that we are with you in those moments as well as the moments of joy and play. We are here for you always. Blessed be. I have been a UU for over 30 years. I moved from Dallas to Lubbock in the late 70s for a job after finishing graduate school. I soon ran into a friend from Dallas who had moved to Lubbock, and she invited me to the UU church. Having had UU friends in Dallas, I decided to give it a try because I had quickly observed in my brief time in Lubbock that contrary to my experience in God-forsaken Dallas, everyone goes to church in Lubbock. It's a godly town. On my second Sunday, I met Tom, who was also visiting the church. A year and a half later, our Lubbock UU minister, Al Judd, officiated at our wedding. Twenty-nine years after that, we gathered in Colorado with Al's widow and other dear UU friends to scatter his ashes beside those of other loved ones from our Lubbock UU church in what I now refer to as our sacred Aspen Grove. In 1996, Tom and I decided to move to Lubbock for family and professional reasons. I didn't comprehend how deep our roots were in Lubbock at the Lubbock UU Church until we announced our plans to move. As the series of going-away parties took place, one of our friends referred to them as Susan's Trail of Tears. It was very hard to leave those friends and that church behind But how blessed we were to find this church with the many opportunities to build new friendships here. But being a UU is not just about sharing tears and comforting each other in times of loss. It's about the good times, too. There is a hymn in our hymnal that begins, We laugh, we cry, we live, we die. We dance, we sing our song. I don't think it's an accident or mere poetic license that laugh precedes cry. One of the many fine qualities I find most endearing in our new minister, Meg Barnhouse, is her delightful sense of humor. And I was so excited when Barbara announced that she would be preaching about the fish philosophy. I had used that in management training and staff retention initiatives in my workplace, so I knew that an important part of the fish philosophy has to do with play. I was ready to have Barbara throw fish at me. The next line of the hymn, though, goes, We need to feel there's something here to which we can belong. It has been my pleasure and an honor to serve on your board of trustees this past year and a half, first as a trustee and now as the vice president, and have a role in developing our mission and values and ends, which are based on input from you. A very important part of our mission says we gather in community to laugh, to cry, to sing, to dance, to play. 
One of our ends says that First UU of Austin is a radically hospitable community where people, that means all of us, are fully engaged and generous with our time and our treasure and our talents. Today is our annual Connections Fair. I think it's great that it occurs in the midst of our stewardship campaign, and I love that we call it the Connections Fair. How fitting it is that each of us has the opportunity to explore how we can best be fully engaged and generous with our time and our talents, and how fitting it is that we have the opportunity to share our financial treasures with each other. First UU of Austin is fast becoming the vibrant church we want it to be. A vibrant church demands a vibrant budget. If you are new to this congregation, I encourage you to plunge in and generously share your time and talents and treasure as you are best able. I can promise you friendships and community that will last for decades. If you have been a member of this congregation for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. Let's all do our part to live our mission and achieve our ends. As you leave this place, take with you a sense of joy from the gifts we've been honored with, a sense of appreciation for the work of others we benefit from, a sense of commitment to the strengthening of our church, a sense of love for those who support us in this community, and a sense of awe for what we can accomplish when we work together in our faith. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.